As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Good to be here. And we're really pleased to be welcoming a guest back onto the show for the very first time. Uh, it's Glenn Scrivener. Hi, Glenn. How are you doing Hello, today? Hello, Tim. Yeah, doing really well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, for those who haven't come across you or, or your ministry, could you share a little bit about what you do when you're not recording podcasts? Sure. I'm an evangelist uh, with Speak Life. So that's uh, the ministry that I'm part of. We're based here on the south coast of England, but we broadcast to the world from... Uh, here in our studios, and we've got uh, YouTube and podcast and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, we go around the place and, and uh, speak about Jesus, and we train others to do the same. So that's that's kind of if you like creativity and evangelism and going deep in your theology, then we are the place that's sort of at the intersection of those three things. Awesome. And yeah, side note: do recommend lots of of Glenn's resources, particularly his his uh, his videos around Christmas and Easter are always worth a watch. I enjoy those in particular. Um, today we wanted to talk a little bit about what is often called the spiritual but not religious. Uh, these are people who who wouldn't tick the the kind of any particular religion box on the census, um, but but aren't your kind of Dawkins style hardline atheists. Um, I, I don't, I'm sure you guys saw that the, the the census results here in the UK came out that once a decade uh, census came out uh, a few months ago and and the kind of headline findings on religion were that for the first time less than half of the population 46% described themselves as Christians which is a big decrease from 59% last time and no religion has has jumped up by 12 points to 37% of the population uh, though this is actually thought to be perhaps a bit of an undercount because of how the question is worded. Um, but I saw this really interesting survey by the think tank Theos, which which kind of dug into these these no these nuns, as they're sometimes called, the the non-religious, and found only half of them actually don't believe in God. So half do believe in God, and a further twenty percent said they probably or definitely believed in in life after death, and seventeen percent said they believed in the power of prayer. And so, what is really intriguing, I think, when you dig into some of the data, and I'm sure. Glenn, you can speak to some of this, is that actually when we um, try and think a bit harder about who kind of quote-unquote non-religious people are today, they're actually not as atheistic, perhaps, as we might have presumed. Is that mm. is that your experience? Oh, 100%. And and as we think about sort of statistics and that kind of thing, the first, the first place my mind goes is the book of Numbers, because th- <laughs> there is a place where people are genuinely trying to do the census, and they're trying to, to number the number of people who are available to Israel um, 
for the armed forces. And so they count all the sort of the, the men of fighting age and they come up with all these tallies. And then they don't count the Levites because the Levites are doing a different thing. And they're, and they're the ones who are actually meant to be doing the priestly work of bringing God to the people and the people to God. And they're sort of not counted alongside everybody else. But if you if you kind of do piece together the statistics, the people who are actively Levitical and priestly is kind of less than 3% of the population. And yet they are the ones who are charged with, you know, saying the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. And they're putting God's name onto people and blessing the people. And and God is able to make do with 3% of the population doing this priestly task. And that that seems to be like his ideal like from, from the outset. And so sometimes Christians get, get really exercised by the fact that, you know, our, our numbers are not, you know, like as though you know, the number of Christians in the UK is less than 50%. We knew that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you play sport, <laughs> like if you're, if you're playing with 10 other guys um, at, at football, you, you know that five of them are not with you in church. <laughs> On, on Sunday, you you probably already a lot know more that. than five in truth. <laughs> yeah, like you're probably aware that you're the only Christian in your team, and so the the idea that anybody is shocked by the fact that you know less than fifty percent <laughs> sort of identify as, as Christian that that's sort of the the, the first thing I, I think. And another thing I think is, um, I, I went to a, a university to do a, a mission, and there was this there's this one talk where I wasn't the one giving the, the talk at the mission. I was in the audience while somebody else spoke, and then there was a Q and A session where the the president of the the Humanist Association got up and grabbed the microphone and asked the spiciest, most difficult questions of the speaker, and it was really uncomfortable. It was putting a knot in everyone's stomach, and everyone's shoulders were up around their ears by the time that the poor student had to get back up and say, "Right, well, that's all the time we've got." And uh, if you want to come back tonight, then Glenn's speaking, and and maybe maybe you'd want to come back. And and then like the 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 afternoon sort of session is sort of finished, and now our shoulders start to descend from around our ears. And I just turned to the guy next to me and I said, "Like, what did you make of that?" And uh, and he said, oh, I wasn't listening to anything that idiot was saying, pointing to this this guy with the angry questions. He said, my granddad died last week, and I'm starting to ask questions like, what is life about? Do you have any thoughts? And I just said, yeah, I, I, I've got a few. And we, we just started this conversation that went on for at least another hour. He came back that, that night. He received Christ. He's still following Jesus today. And my motto ever since then is that the guy with the microphone does not speak for the room. And when you apply that to the cultural level, you know, you listen to the Today program on Radio 4 or you watch Channel 4 News or you, you, you keep your ear to the ground culturally and you think the people with the microphones are the ones who are speaking for the country. And of course they don't. And it just takes you to turn to your neighbor and ask them about their life. And then all of a sudden you recognize they've just lost their grandfather and they're wondering what life is all about. And so the, the, the discourse that happens at the cultural level in terms of you know how many people are Christians and and what is the sort of the cultural relevance and the cultural temperature, um, spiritually speaking, that's one thing. Turning to your neighbour and asking them about their life is an entirely different thing. But that's actually where evangelism actually happens. And so many evangelists like me, I want to go and grab the the cultural microphones from people. <laughs> and kind of blast my message out to the the culture in general. But it's very interesting that the Bible doesn't often like tell you to love the world. God, God's got that one covered. He tells you to love your neighbor, right? <laughs> and so evangelistically, I find that so 
important. I can think that the culture believes one thing. That's got nothing to do with what my friend actually believes in front of me. And they might describe themselves as an atheist or any, any other number of things. But press in. Ask them those questions and, and you'll discover that they've got the same existential questions that anyone else has. Hmm. And one of the things that really struck me is, is this idea that we as Christians, I think, often get quite hung up on belief as as the determining factor because you either you know you believe or you don't believe you're a believer or a non-believer and actually i think that's a framework which strikes seems to me is is somehow less relevant maybe for some of particularly people of my generation kind of millennials and, and where what you believe is is a bit of a free-for-all and and sometimes what's more important is how, what you do what your practice is and so lots of people will say yeah sure i don't believe in god i don't believe in the bible i don't believe in jesus but actually their practice might be, well, I do. I, I go into the gra- graveyard and speak to my grandma who died 20 years ago. Or, yeah. or I, you know, sometimes I meditate. Or, or, and there's this kind of pick and mix, this melange of spirituality, which we're all like in our kind of evangelical rationalist way. Well, none of this makes any sense because if there isn't a God, who are you praying to? But that, that seems to be a hurdle that other people don't necessarily struggle with. And every missiologist knows this. Like, And we just need to treat our own culture in the ways that missiologists think about other cultures. Because like, you might do a course in Islam and you might think you understand all the major branches of Islam and what Muslims are meant to believe. But then when you're talking to your Muslim friends, they, they might have the audacity to, to have their own thoughts about things. And of course they do. And, and it might be some kind of mixture of folk Islam and Sunni Islam and Sufi Islam. And who knows? They, they, they might have all sorts of different you know, aberrant views. But you won't know that until you actually inquire um, what, what they believe. And the same thing is true of, of your friend. And you, you might think that they, because they use the label atheist, then they have an identical metaphysic to that of Richard Dawkins, which is just a ridiculous thing to imagine. And more so because I think we're living in an age of nominal atheism. We're used to thinking about nominal Christianity. And, you know, I live here in Eastbourne, which is the sort of the, the, the retirement capital of, of the UK. And it's the sort of place where all, all the shop windows are bifocal. It's, it's that, that kind of God's waiting room and all that. And in this town, nominal Christianity is a big thing. Because when people were growing up, it was very easy to look at a shelf full of labels and pick out the Christian one because that you can put that on your chest and go out into the world and that helps you to navigate life frictionlessly. What are you? I'm a Christian. Why? I was born in a Christian country. What are you talking about? Of course I'm a Christian. And there's such a thing as nominal Christianity. But then when I go out to university campuses, which is so much of what I do, I encounter a whole lot of nominal atheism. And nominal atheism is... In today's day and age, it's exactly the same. People look at a shelf of identities and you can pick the atheist or agnostic you know, label and you put it on, not because you've read The God Delusion, not because you've put more than half an hour into you know, your, your entire philosophy of life, but it's a label that helps you to navigate life. And so you're an atheist and, and away you go. But of course you pray and of course you think Auntie Edna is in heaven and you know some some higher power is watching over us and and this this is what um the this is what the statisticians have learned to do they've learned in the last 20 years to not simply ask the question do you believe in god or not but for those who say they don't believe in god they now ask further questions do you believe in a higher power do you pray do you believe in the afterlife and the majority of people in 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 the states who say that they're atheist also believe in a higher power, also occasionally pray, um, 
also believe in some kind of an afterlife. You're like, well, this is, they are not Richard Dawkins's. Right? They are not Bertrand Russell's. But you won't know that unless you actually get into conversation with them and, and, and tease that out. So that's, that's what I really encourage. So one of the things that um, the author of the, uh, the book Strange Rights is arguing or is, is investigating is things in contemporary society which play the same role that religion has traditionally played and uh, and one of and, and there are multiple of these aren't there of, of, of sort of quotes new religions and one of them is the whole kind of wellness um, trend and one of the things she emphasizes which I hadn't really cottoned on before is that not only is there a great interest in in wellness but this has now been uh, accentuated by commercial pressures that 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 the big brands have have recognized the enormous profits to be made from making their brands spiritual uh, good for good for the self good for the soul uh, and so on what are your thoughts about that i mean do, do you see that that trend in your in engaging with young people Completely. I mean, you, you go to a Waterstones. Like the, there's one near us in in Brighton, and the the religion section is on the same shelf as diet, right? And 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 health, right? It's 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 all kind of one thing. And in a lot of people's you know imaginations, that yeah, your your mental well being and your physical well being and your spiritual well being all kind of goes into the same thing because we're in a more reductionistic age and. Um, and and therefore we invest in in that. And you're absolutely right about um, the market and capitalism kind of uh, leveraging that. Uh, we we before COVID, um, we at Speak Life would go to the Mind Body Soul show in Alexandra Palace every year. It's it's the largest sort of New Age um, exhibition, and it it runs over the course of sort of three days every year. And it's the, yeah, it's the largest um, New Age exhibition in Europe, in fact. And uh, so we would pay to have a little stall and there'd be the Reiki healer to, to our right and, and there'd be sort of lots of yoga mats to the left. And what really, one of the things that really set us apart as a stall is that we would offer to pray with people and people would literally be uh, like reaching into their pockets and saying, oh yeah, and how much do we owe you for that? <laughs> because at the stall next to us, it was 25 quid a prayer. <laughs> and, and, like, oh. we were, and, and we were giving out like Bibles and people were, were absolutely stunned because everybody else was making a packet <laughs> and as, especially the yoga industry. Had ab- absolutely um, kind of turbocharged, you know, the um, ca- capitalism and spirituality to to make it this this thing. Um, but we loved um, we loved doing that because you would get into so many more interesting spiritual conversations at the Mind Body Soul exhibition. You would get, and it's such a it's such a refreshing break from just talking to your average jaded secular person. And of course they believe in angels and of course they believe in God and you have to press into, you know, which God are you talking about? And let's discuss those sorts of things. But it's a, it's a real reminder once again, that, you know, your average Brit is, is not a thoroughgoing naturalist at all. And lots of people have, have spiritual views um, that are really interesting. I mean, the talking Jesus survey that um, they, they did it in 2015. And then again, in 2022, um, a very decent sample size of Brits that they um, have surveyed uh, near, near enough to 4,000. 
uh, Brits from all, all across the country, asking them about about various beliefs. And one of the things they ask is, um, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And something like 42%, I think, of Brits believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And people are like, yeah, sure, why not? I, <laughs> I believe crazier things than that. Lots of people believe crazier things than that. And we we imagine, once again, that you know, your your average Brit is um just going along thinking thinking um that we are nothing but but matter in motion. And even the people who say that they're atheists don't believe that. And forty two percent of the country believes that Jesus rose again from the dead. This is this is interesting. But is that actually a help or a hindrance? I mean, I wonder whether you know, I think a lot of Christians were like rubbing their hands with glee, thinking, great, you know, we're half the battle's already won. But I wonder, the kind of person who offhand, without having thought about it, does believe Jesus rose from the dead, are they really, I sometimes wonder if you might, you could present the kind of gospel and they're like, okay, cool, yeah, I'll just add that to my kind of grab bag of pick and mix spirituality and something about the exclusive kind of truth claims, the kind of very pre-postmodern, the modernism of, of Christianity gets lost there if people are like, well, I already believe in angels and in Reiki and I do a bit of tarot cards and I do some yoga. Why yeah. not throw in the risen Jesus? And we're like, mm, yeah. it doesn't quite work like that. Do you, do you see that as a bit of a barrier sometimes? It's Yeah, it's, it's not like it's one more unpopular opinion that you sort of add to your inventory and all of a sudden you're a Christian. Um, it's not that, but it does save you a lot of bother. If, if you are in a modernist mindset and you think what I really need to do with every unbeliever is make sure they know the five minimal facts from history that will convince you that that tomb was empty on Easter Sunday morning and the only explanation. Let me take you through four alternative explanations for the empty tomb. Number one, number two. Number, I don't know very many people that that, that has helped. You know, the, the people who that has helped are very vocal about how much it has helped them. And I think it, it, that therefore shapes what a lot of evangelists and apologists think evangelism is. But you are bashing down an open door <laughs> with, with 42% at least. <laughs> you, you are absolutely hammering at an open door with 42% of people. And you could perhaps be spending your time um, better in evangelism. <laughs> You've got all your work ahead of you if you want to like convince them that Jesus is Lord in this sort of unique name above all names sense. Mm. Absolutely. But treating everybody like they're a thoroughgoing naturalist, um, it, it's not very sensitive evangelism. I don't think it's very effective evangelism. So w where should we be putting the emphasis then? Because it does seem as though so much of traditional evangelism... Of, uh, of the way that people are trained, of, um, is often in this sort of traditional apologetic uh, mindset, which, which often reminds me of a sort of sixth form debating society. It's the kind of things which, which uh, work in that kind of context. But in the real world where people are wrestling, as you say, with, with, with bereavement, with anxieties about the future and so on, where do you feel is the best uh, or, or, or what are positive ways of engaging with these people who are open-minded in some sense, but also deeply suspicious of, mm. of powerful truth claims or of, of institutions? Yeah, lots in there. I, I think um, the question is always, um, which God are we talking about? So like when we're at the mind, body, soul show and people absolutely believe in God and they will um, happily own such a belief. The very next question is, well, which God are we talking about here? Um, and I want to talk about the God who is revealed in Jesus. And he, he reveals to us um, 
a unique kind of a god who makes exclusive truth claims, but he's also a, a uniquely brilliant god who is a god of love because he's the son of the father, full of the spirit. And for all the talk among the new age about love being ultimate, actually you press into their visions of God and it sounds a lot more like electricity than it does like a personal God who, um, who is love, as 1 John 4 verse 8 kind of says. And so pressing into that question of, of who is God and making sure that you're absolutely talking about the, the Christ of Scripture is, is vital. It's vital with the, the New Ager. It's also vital with the New Atheist um, because when they say, you know, I don't believe in God, you can ask the very same question to them. Well, which God don't you believe in? Um, because the God that they don't believe in is very often um, like the God of electricity. <laughs> you know, you, you ask them to describe the God in whom they don't believe, and it's usually some kind of individual high on power, low on personality, a, a Zeus figure with a thunderbolt to hurl. And you can say to them, well, good news, I don't believe in that God either. We share our atheism as regards that deity. Can I introduce you to Jesus and, and, the, and the God who Jesus reveals? And so getting, getting into the person of Jesus is, is so much more fruitful, I think, and can so often connect with people nowadays who might think of themselves as not believers, and yet they believe in all sorts of things like equality and compassion and consent, enlightenment, science, freedom and progress, which are all these sort of values that I talk about in my, my last book, the, the Air We Breathe, and how I, I, I talk about the things that we already believe in, like human rights and the sanctity of life and, and the, the worth and inviolable dignity of all people and these sorts of things that we, we already are believers. We're already believing in these supernatural values because you don't derive these values from the natural world. They have come to us through the Jesus revolution. And, and, and so what I'm trying to do is kind of take these beliefs that people already have that are quite supernatural in one sort of sense and say they don't make sense without Jesus. They don't make sense without this person who is compassion himself and who embodies the, the sort of the revolution that, that people in the West have, have been shaped by, maybe even anonymously. And so, yeah, in whoever I'm talking to, I'm, I'm always trying to get them back to the person of Jesus rather than try and get them with their arm up behind their back until they sort of say, all right, fine, he rose from the dead. Um, yeah. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death podcast from Premier Unbelievable. It reminds me of when um, uh, I was at university, I was part of the, the Christian Union there and served a, a year on, on the kind of exec committee in charge of kind of putting on events. And I, I, I found myself kind of like dutifully executing the kind of playbook of CUs from time immemorial and putting on these things. They inexplicably called lunch bars, kind of talks from an outside speaker. I'm sure you've done many of these in your time. And and we would kind of in our in our kind of slightly blundering way, just be like, well, I guess we should put on some kind of apologetic-y kind of thing. So I put on a talk, which was all about, um, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I think it was around Easter time. It seemed, seemed like an obvious question. And um, uh was disappointed to find out that very few people, I think we had like two or three people turn up who weren't already CU members. 
And that was kind of a microcosm of my overall experience. And my kind of reflection was always was, we're asking questions that no one else on campus is asking questions. You know, mm. none of my non-Christian friends had, had ever really thought to themselves, what, as you said before, what is the evidence of, the, of that explains the empty tomb? And and so much of, and it felt like so much of the playbook we were using was written in a previous era where there was, you know, a nominal Christianity. Everyone was a Christian, but they had kind of fell away. And so we had to undergird them and show that actually you could be a credible thinking kind of 21st century person and yet still believe in these this extraordinary story. Well, at least a 20th century person. At least a, yeah, <laughs> that's more accurately a 20th century person. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it just and that was 10 years ago. And I've no doubt it's even it's raced away even for more from us. And so I guess what my question is, what are the questions that that you find kind of particularly maybe even, you know, Jen's edits, the real young ones, what are they asking? They're not asking, did Jesus rise from the dead? They're probably not asking, you know, is Christianity true? But what are the questions they are asking? And how can we find kind of gospel centered answers to those? Mm, yeah, there are questions about meaning, significance, purpose, value, those sorts of things. That um, and and the sort of the the how do we now live in the absence of an overarching narrative that makes sense of our lives and and gives you meaning and purpose? Um, yeah, we we very much are asking those those big questions about about the meaning, significance of the whole thing. Um, we're also what what I think we didn't see coming was how very um, moral we are. Gen Zers are incredibly moral and and um, and want to be part of a significant movement for change and justice. Um, and I think that that kind of puts the lie to this the, the old Dostoevsky line that you know without God everything is permissible. And I think what we're finding is that, like, without God, everything is preachy, like really, really, really preachy. Um, that that actually, um, I think what we've found with the Jesus Revolution is that it has created uh, a kingdom without the king. Certainly, you know, the secular the secular West is kind of a kingdom without the king, trying to have Jesus ish values without Jesus himself. And what happens if you've got only values is those values become incredibly important, but um, we kind of know we fall short of them. But the only way of dealing with that is by blaming the other person for your own failures. And and so we've become incredibly righteous um, and we've lost a sense of forgiveness. I, I think forgiveness is a huge apologetic um area that we need to dig into massively um our own personal need for forgiveness our own need uh, our culture's need for us to pass on forgiveness to other people um and leveraging the idea of those values is again that's what the air we breathe um my book last year was trying to do and and just trying to say on on university campuses i'll very often do a talk on human rights where, where do people think they've come from and people have a very, very strong sense of our rights. They'll have a very strong sense of the, the moral equality and dignity of all people. Um, but it, it really doesn't take long to press into, and where does that come from? And for people to say, oh my goodness, <laughs> um, these, these are not naturally given. You don't cut a human being open and find you know, human rights existing somewhere. Um, that, that this is 
a transcendent value in our culture that we kind of believe in. And historically, it has come to us through the Jesus Revolution. And people, people, I, I find it very fruitful to show people the values they already have, to show how they're profoundly believing in these things already, to show them that only Jesus really makes sense of those things. And to, and to show them that because Jesus himself embodies them rather than having a value over you, well, values can't forgive you. Values can only judge you. Um, Jesus can forgive you. And that's that's the sort of gospel I end up sort of preaching in, in those contexts. But you're right, they're, they're very different kind of topics to, to the ones that we were probably using 20 years ago. I think one of the other issues uh, which... Again, you bring out in your book, which, which to be honest, is, is excellent, and I, um, we must put a link into it in the, in the podcast notes, um, is the idea of progress, isn't it, and, and what kind of future we're creating for our children. I, I find that a question which a lot of people want to talk about, and there's a, a lot of interest, but also a great deal of concern. You know, where, where on earth is this all going, particularly the technology? Yeah. Yeah. And how are you going to measure progress? Okay. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a one word argument for progress. Um, dentistry. Do, do you want to go to a 13th century dentist or do a 21st century dentist? Case closed. Okay. So, at, but at, at that point you can say, okay, developments in healthcare and technology. Great. That's a kind of progress, but that's a lot more than what people mean when they want to be progressive. They they don't just want technological developments. They they think that the evils of yesteryear need to be reformed today so that we can march on towards a brighter future. They 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 think there's a moral sense of progress. They think Martin Luther King Jr. that the 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 arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But again, pull at that thread, and you you ask. Like, where does such a view come from? Because it's a profoundly theological view. It means that standing above history is some transcendent values that somehow history is, is moving towards. And not only is it impossible to kind of have a metric of progress without some transcendent value above you, if you don't have a transcendent value above you, then um, it, it, it is an incredibly dark idea that history is marching towards progress because if there's nothing above us, then it's only the powerful history makers who are marching towards their vision for what the future must be. And they are marching now in the name of progress. And, you know, actually it's just historical inevitability. They're saying it's historical inevitability when actually it's their power plays. And, and you know, the 20th century um, produced a, a whole lot of utopian thinkers who had all sorts of four-year plans and five-year plans you know, under Stalin, or Mao had his great leap forward that killed tens of millions of people, um, all in all in the name of progress. And so you can you can tap into people's ideas of progress. You know, what kind of progress? Hopefully not the Chairman Mao kind of progress. Do we have this transcendent value, or is it just the powerful trying to to march towards their vision of of reality and then calling it historical? historical inevitability. Don't you need a transcendent value above history? And and you can make those sorts of arguments. One of the things many commentators, actually including the author of the book that Dad mentioned earlier, um, Strange Rights, which is a kind of theologian called um, uh, Tara Isabella Burton, she argues that, that a lot of this kind of social justice culture that you've been talking about functions in many ways for those who kind of adhere to it as a form of religiosity. 
that it has an almost liturgical sacramental quality some of the and the kind of rituals including kind of you know when when you have transgressed making these kind of very performative apologies online and 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 it, and it fosters community and kind of that collective effervescence that that Dirk Heim and other sociologists of religion talk about. Do you do you buy into that? That kind of there is such a thing as the Church of Social Justice that even though there isn't any kind of institutional belief system, that that for many people within that world, this is effectively their religion. Yes, I think there's, there's a there's a deep sense to that. The people who often call that out, though, are unaware of their own religious truth truth claims. So what you what you tend to get is people who are more on the right of politics who don't like social justice warriors and they see the social justice warriors do their thing. And, and then they say, Oh no, it's one of those religion. It's, it's, it's a deeply religious thing. And of course, for such, for such people, religion is a dirty word. And they kind of, they, they think, um, what we, what we really need to do is get back to the enlightenment at which point such people reveal, um, that they are unaware of their own religious biases, (laughs) because the Enlightenment was itself a Christian heresy. So I, I think there are some expressions of social, social justice warriorhood um, that could be described as like a Christian heresy. That I, I think there are some expressions. There, are, there is also a very obvious Christian heresy called the Enlightenment. <laughs> and what, what tends to happen is that those who simply trace their spiritual and, and philosophical roots back to 1700, um, they are unaware of how religious their secular liberal moral worldview is when it's actually quite Jesus-ish, but it's a Christian heresy. The, the, the Enlightenment people end up um, wanting to bash the social justice warriors on, on the other side. And you've got the, the woke versus the anti-woke, which I think as Christians, we should kind of step back from and kind of think, um, no, I think both, both the woke and the anti-woke are having a conversation that is unintelligible without the Christian revolution and without the the kind of the, the metaphysical and moral furniture that the, the kingdom of Jesus provides them. And they're, they're, they're hurling Bible verses at each other. They've just forgotten the references. And I think us, us Christians can, can note the ways in which um, those in the liberal tradition um, have borrowed from Christianity, and and at times we can rejoice in in some of the fruits of that, and we can look at the ways in which um, the woke, let's you know use, use that as a shorthand, um, have borrowed from from Christian values and have at times made progress in in, in meaningful ways, um, but both both of them I I think are missing out on the true life of the kingdom, in which Jesus doesn't merely give us values but embodies, you know, the, he is the transcendent one who we love. And you know, the, the life of the church, I think, is meant to embody the, the best of, of both worlds, not because it's some centrist third way in between them, but because it was the original vision from which these other two visions have devolved. And so that, that's where I think the, the, the Christian sits in all that. And when do you think that religious institutions, I mean, just looking forward into the future, seeing these sociological trends, and in particular, this very strong suspicion of established hierarchical uh, religious institutions, particularly the traditional Christian denominations, 
Where do you see this going? I mean, do you do you see there being some kind of backlash, uh, a sort of movement back to uh, liturgy and authority and orthodoxy? Or, or do you see fundamentally this sociological trend continuing in an anti-authoritarian, anti-institutional direction? I think the people with the microphones will continue to... Um, go in the direction of institutional suspicion and and all of that. But I I think there will be more and more refugees from that kind of um, that kind of vision for life in, in which um, you only are suspicious of institutions and 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 sort of corporate life together. Take for instance um, Kate Forbes and the SNP and Hamza Youssef. Um, so I don't know when this is going to air, but, um, I guess whenever it was about three weeks ago, Hamza Youssef became the, the, the new Scottish first minister, Kate Forbes, um, by many accounts, um, was the more impressive candidate. Um, and some people wonder why she didn't get the job. She's a, an out and out Christian. She's a member of the, the free church of Scotland and she was grilled on, um, her beliefs about sexual ethics and abortion and things like that. She didn't get the job. The, the sort of the continuity candidate with Nicola Sturgeon, Hamza Youssef did get, um, the job and a number of things really interested me about that because for a start, Hamza Youssef was the first, you know, Muslim first minister of Scotland and on social media, you know, sort of posted pictures of him leading his family in prayer in his office in Holyrood. And there, and that made me think, oh, this is, this is interesting. I, I think it will, it will only do the Kate Forbes of this world good. The fact that we've got a, a Hindu prime minister and a, and a Muslim first minister, because we're very rapidly in a world in which Christians just are not the authorities in the land and, and they just don't, in living memory, people will not have the idea of the church being the one with cultural power wagging its finger at us. And beyond that, you know, the, the troubles that the SNP have had with corruption, um, I think, uh, that's bedding itself down in popular consciousness such that when you hear corruption, you don't instantly think the church anymore <laughs> because people are, taking, people are taking a broader view of things and recognizing that there are all sorts of institutions um, that have all sorts of problems. And it's not simply the church uh, that needs to answer questions about hypocrisy and um, financial mismanagement and sexual abuse and, and all, these, all these other sorts of things. So I, I think as we get more and more secularized, I think people and their mistrust of institutions um, will democratize that mistrust and will seek for expressions of community that are much more local, much more bounded, much more close-knit, much more embodied. And the church is very, very well placed um, to provide exactly that. And... Um, Yes, it, it might still be true that people mistrust authority. They mistrust all sorts of authority. They mistrust all sorts of institutions. But what people crave and what people will always continue to crave is embodied community at the local level. And who is better placed in the world to provide that than, than the Christian church? 
So what does that mean at the cultural level? I think the people with the microphones will still set a cultural direction that is away from the church. But I think at a grassroots level, I have all sorts of hope for, for, for the success of the church. One of the kind of slightly contradictory impulses you see at the same time that there has been this drift away from institutions and a suspicion of hierarchy is also a kind of rise of the the charismatic individual, the influencer that people are longing to follow. I mean, I don't know whether you saw there's a fascinating radio series on Radio 4 called The New Gurus, which kind of charted uh, each episode. Looked at, One looked at like wellness, one looked at like cryptocurrency, one was about... Um, I can't remember now, uh, you know, productivity. Um, and, and it's about how these kind of charismatic individuals had garnered enormous followings. And the kind of thesis of the journalist running it was that these are, they are acting in a very traditional sense as a guru, you know, in a kind of spiritual sense, leading a flock. And you and you see that, you know, coming incredibly destructively with people like Andrew Tate, um, who's got, you know, hordes of teenage boys imitating his incredibly toxic brand of masculinity, but also people like Russell Brand and others. Um, do you find that to be true when you speak with, again, kind of Gen Zers, millennials? Are they attracted and, and, and are they kind of latched on to people that, that they're kind of key YouTubers or, or the, the big person in their Discord chat server or whatever it is? Or is that idea slightly overblown? No, I think I, I think that is um, very true, and it's it's tapping into the, there's a messianic kind of uh, bent within us all. We 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 do want to have a king over us to lead us, and and in that one Samuel eight sort of sense, and, and in one Samuel eight, God sort of rolls his eyes and goes, "Oh, God, okay, I'll give you Saul then." Um, that 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 is as old as Adam, really. That that idea of um, having a messianic impulse to put all our hopes and dreams on on the this great hope for us. And it's only supercharged by um, social media. One of the interesting things that social media does, though, is this, this idea of audience capture, that it's not just us being led by the guru. Even more, the guru is being led by us stroke the algorithm. Right? <laughs> and uh, you can definitely see it with Russell Brand. Um, the the ways in which he has like chased after six million awakening souls and and uh, you know his subscribers go up and up and up and up, and you can absolutely see him chasing the winds of the algorithm and becoming you know becoming captured by the crowd. So what's what's fascinating to me is um, nowadays because it's not so much the religious figure that people are following, at least within a religious superstructure, or there ought to be a holy text that, that gives some bounds to where the guru will go. Um, no, no longer. No longer do we have that. And so you then might think, ah, it's the guru themselves that are setting the pace and the direction. It's, it's actually a weird dance that's happening now between the guru and their followers. And quite often you find that the, the guru is being led by their followers. And the, the difference between leader, leadership and influencers is vast, actually. And we, we no longer believe in, in leadership. And we're now at the whims of influencers. But it's not just the influencers. It's, it's the algorithms. And nobody even understands these algorithms. So we're, we're heading in some, uh, some quite alarming directions, I think. Some Christians have kind of jumped into that space and set themselves up as a kind of new guru with good intent, maybe to, as you're saying, you know, well, let's leverage the power of the YouTube algorithm or, 
or or, or Instagram and, and use that as a as you know this is like the ref- reformers jumping onto the printing press. Do you think that is there a kind of would you have a, a cautionary step back or do you think great let's jump onto these technologies let's let's ride the wind of this cultural movement and, and let's try and set up you know some some famous minister or pastor or, or or preacher as a as a guru who can bring people to Christ. Well, uh, Jesus did invent broadcasting, so that's interesting. So you know Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter thirteen, the parable of the sower. Um, he doesn't cast narrowly onto a single soil type. He casts broadly. And literally, that's where broadcasting comes from. You know, what, what is the British Broadcasting Corporation doing? It's doing Matthew chapter 13, but, it, you know, it's got different seed, I guess. Um, we have, we, uh, here, but here, here are some um, controls on Christians. Um, the seed that we are meant to cast broadly is the word of God. Um, and, and we are held to a degree, we, we ought to be held um, institutionally in the church um, uh, and, and scripturally uh, through the Bible in terms of what it is that we are, you know, putting out there into the world. And so uh, I think I think there are controls for the Christian as they seek to broadcast. Um, I think there, you don't want to... Um, you certainly don't want to manipulate people. So 2 Corinthians 4 and all that kind of stuff about, you know, renouncing secret and shameful ways. Um, there's a very, there's a, a very popular Christian YouTuber uh, called us up out of the blue um, a couple of weeks ago. He said, I like, I like the stuff that you do. I, I want to tell you how you can grow your YouTube channel like that. And I was like, oh, tell me, what, what do you do? He said, thumbnails and titles. It's all about thumbnails and titles. You need conflict and curiosity. And he sort of told me about, you know, you just need to drive conflict and curiosity in, in, in the way that you frame what you're trying to do. And, and I sort of listened for a bit. And then I said, how do you differentiate that from clickbait? <laughs> he said, oh, no, it's not clickbait. It's not clickbait. It's, it's conflict and curiosity. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, now, it's, it's absolutely true that I, I, I want to use... By all means possible, I want to become all things to all people that some might be saved, 1 Corinthians 9. I absolutely do. And it would be stupid of us to completely ignore what trending topics there are on YouTube. It would be, it would be stupid for us to do that. It would be stupid for us to, to ignore what the trending hashtags are on Twitter. That would, that would be silly for um, an organization that, that seeks to reach out online. But even if you do jump onto a trending hashtag, what is it that you want to communicate? What is it that you want to say? And if it's the same as what everyone else is saying, you're already onto a loser. Like, why, why bother jumping onto a, a trending hashtag if you're just going to say what the majority are already saying? But I, I think there are ways of, to some degree, playing the game and to some degree keeping our ear to the ground on what is it that's trending. But then to, then to do what Dan Strange uh, talks about, we, we need to be subversively fulfilling what people are looking for. And the subversive fulfillment of what people are looking for in that trending hashtag is, is to, to bring a, a no and then a yes, a, a cross and a resurrection, and to surprise people with the good news of Jesus in the midst of that. And that will mean a, probably a sacrifice of popularity. That will probably mean you know, we, we won't get pushed in the algorithm as much. But I think it would be unwise of us to ignore the, ignore the algorithm, ignore search engine optimization and all that. Hmm. So it's a very interesting 
move that we're in at the moment is that we seem to have, on the one hand, extraordinary techno-optimism. You know, technology is going to solve the problems, whatever they are, society has to offer. Technology provides a solution. And then there's this deep, deep pessimism of we're all doomed. Uh, it's either the climate, that's, or increasingly now with these new artificial intelligence programs, it's AI that's going to, you know, take over and destroy humanity. And um, I find it very hard to get my head around this sort of, this very febrile optimism on the one hand and then deep, deep gloom and despair on the other. What's your take on that? <laughs> That's why we're getting you onto our podcast, John, to give us, to give us the answer. No spoilers, exactly. no spoilers. <laughs> I'll send you away with homework. You, you need, you need, need to have to the solve answer it. By, by the next time. You know, I, well, the, the, big, the big problem is always us, isn't it? And I, and I think that's, that's what is, um, that's what's a problem with looking at the climate or looking at AI as though, as though the big problem that we're always, you know, going to be faced with lies outside of ourselves. <laughs> the big, the big problem is, is, is always the human heart. And if AI is a problem, um, it's only a problem because it is supercharging the self-justification and the deceit and the selfishness and the greed and the pride that is already present in in humans. So, um, should we be um, should we be pe pessimist or optimist? Is is kind of like the question: Should we be pessimist or optimist about human nature? And I think I think Christians have a a, a uniquely balanced view on that. Um, we are from one perspective, so incredibly pessimistic, you know, if you happen to believe in total depravity and the bondage of the will, and I'm in Adam and, um, you know, every, every single capacity is affected by sin. Um, you might think that the Christian view is a very negative view of, of human nature, but also if you see that we're made in the image of God and that God, the son himself became human and remains human and that the history of the cosmos is bound up with the human race, um, you become incredibly, incredibly hopeful. And so um, I don't know how to answer the, the climate crisis or the AI thing, but I, I think um, there must be a way to be both very realistic um, and hopeful and to focus the, the questions on the nature of what we are like rather than rather than that we're, we're going to get blindsided by, by tech or the environment outside us. Well, that seems like a, a weighty and appropriate place to draw a conversation to a close. <laughs> Thanks so much, Glenn. It's been so interesting hearing some of your thoughts on these big ideas. And um, yeah, really grateful for you sharing some of your wisdom uh, with us ah. and the listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, a pleasure. We'll, we'll make sure we'll get you back on at some point, I'm sure. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening as well. Um, as always, if you want to uh, find some interesting things to read or listen or watch, you can always go to Dad's website. That's johnwyatt.com. Uh, we'll put links to Speak Life and, and their materials and then stuff from Glenn's people in, in, the, in the show notes as well. Um, and you can always get in touch with us by emailing molad, that's M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, we'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Unbelievable.